Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have filmmaker Adam Lippi, who's make, made a movie called Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. Welcome to the show, Chris. Adam. Adam. Oh, see, I messed it up already. <laughs> do, you, do you need to start over? Nah, I don't care. Okay. Um, so thank you for being on the show, Adam. Sure. I mean, call me Chris if that's easier for you. No, 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 man. I want to call you by your right name. Okay. Um, so h- how did you get into filmmaking? So I was a, f- a film critic in high school, and um, I, wrote, I went to film school, did make some shorts in college, and um, uh, after college didn't really uh, go back into filmmaking. I, I, didn't, I didn't enjoy it that much in college. Um, and, uh, the filmmaking side of it. So I, uh, went back to writing about film more often and then was a film critic up until about 2013. And I had a conversation with somebody who wanted to, uh, they wanted to make a zombie movie. And I said, well, why would you do that? You know, you could make a virus. Everyone makes zombie movies. You could just make a virus movie and, uh, you know, make up your own rules. You don't have to follow along what you know fast zombies slow zombies you know all the things that everyone associates with it you can just do your own thing uh he disagreed and uh, i just started writing and uh, eventually came up with a, a wildly overlong script for a horror comedy uh, about a viral pandemic in uh, inner city philadelphia and uh, what would happen if the um, virus got out of control the military tried to uh, stop the spread when when uh, uh, like a video goes viral uh, of, of, you know, someone recording an attack because the, the, the virus causes massive dehydration. People start attacking each other and um, the military tries to stop it and slow it down and they realize they can't do it. So they, they put up fences everywhere in the inner city and uh, let everybody die. It's about the people who were left there to die. Um, and um, so initially I wrote this very long script with, you know, lots of carnage and humor and over the top stuff and I didn't intend to make it. I, I offered it to some other people. They weren't interested. And then I realized that no one was ever going to make it. So um, I started out trying to make it in first 2014. And then that didn't work out. Uh, I tried to shoot in Philadelphia in uh, t- uh, 2014, raised some money, couldn't, couldn't get the cast that I wanted. So I cast it in New York in 2014 and then tried to shoot it there as I raised money, but realized the locations were too expensive. So I brought the cast out to Philadelphia and shot it in 2015. Uh, most of the people who I'd cast in New York and then shot it over um, mostly in 2015 and then portions in 2017 because I ran out of money in the middle. And um, we uh, were in post-production for a long time because of, you know, when you're working on a super low budget like this, uh, despite having lots and lots of locations and, um, uh, extras and you know it, it, it's it's a very cheap movie for something that has a lot in it and um, it took post-production took a really long time and the movie wasn't actually finished until uh, like the first weekend that we were all quarantined in March of 2020 um, but it gave us time to you know 
have several sequences that were animated and that sort of thing. If that answers your question, I realize that was a long-winded. That's, that's great. Um, how, how did you, um, I, mean, I mean, it sounds like you funded this basically on your own. Um, yeah. How did you uh, raise money to film it? Because I, mean, I saw the, uh, I watched the trailer and it looks high quality to me. Thank you. Um, well, the first, uh, say 50, 60% of the money that we shot in 2015, that was uh, raised through friends and family. We tried um, uh, crowdsourcing, that didn't really work. And um, and then the stuff in 2017 was just, you know, I was working a, a regular middle-class job and I would put money away and shoot every couple months, put all the, the days together. They'd be very complicated days, lots and lots of sequences shot you know, okay, I can put this much money away and do this in April. And then, you know, I got to wait a couple months to earn some more money. So then we'll shoot these scenes in August and then, okay, well, I got to cram this in before this person's not available. You know, it's been two and a half years since we shot with this person, you know, we'll, you know, they still look the same. Let's make sure we got the, the costumes right. And then we'll do that a couple of weeks later. And then, yeah. So, so the last five days uh, were shot over a period of about eight or nine months. So nothing consecutive, but they were complex days that required, massive amounts of planning so yeah it was it was um I, I raised all the money as well wow that's incredible and um you, your cast you found them in new york and they, they were driving all the way to philly just to film uh well no what i did was um uh, it's very cheap to put people on buses yeah uh so it's the easiest way to get around of course so we put them on a, a bus and then you put them in airbnb and you just rent a um an Airbnb for a couple of days. If you're shooting on consecutive days, if you're not shooting on consecutive days, you just, you know, get them up there in the morning and then send them back when they're done for the day. Um, and that's, you know, everyone wants to sleep in their own bed. I mean, I would always, I would always offer, look, I'll get you, I'll get you an Airbnb if you want. And no one would ever say yes. So, um, you know, if it was, it, it, cause, because we weren't shooting consecutive days in 2017. So no one ever said, no, I absolutely want to do that. I would have done it, but nobody ever wanted to do that. They always wanted to be in their own sleep in their own bed, which I totally understand. Yeah. Um, with casting, like, like, how do you choose the right cast? Uh, like, you know, how do you pick the right person for the right part? Like, how do you know? Do you just go by a gut feeling when you audition for it? Or do you have well, you, a certain we had, criteria? We had um, several stages of auditions. And the way the script was written, um, it, was very, it was very much written not in a traditional way. So the script... Uh, the dialogue reads like it would be in a play. So people have long monologues and they speak for a long time and you get a sense of who they are. And each of the main characters had two scenes that did that at least. And there are 12 main characters. So every, you know, each character had just a show offy thing that they did. And what we did was the sides, which is what you give to actors to audition with would be I choose one scene and then they would all audition with that same, that one scene. And then if they were good enough and we, we, you know, we'd record the auditions, you'd call them back and then they would do the other scene. And uh, most of those scenes ended up in the movie verbatim. Um, uh, even if we shot them and we cut them down, you know, not almost none of the dialogue changed in that sense from, you know, doing the auditions to actually shooting the movie. I was confident enough, that the dialogue would be helpful and, and give people a sense of the character. And then because I was working with mostly, you know, well, completely at the time unheralded actors, 
and it doesn't mean they're bad. It just means like nobody who knew who they were. Um, It meant that um, I could cast based on what they seemed like. Oh, well, this person, you know, is exactly, I wrote this, you know, and, and, you know, this, this person is, uh, you know, um, uh, has, has an uh, interesting pushback combative attitude, but they have a sweetness to them. So I'll cast that person in this role or, or, um, uh, that, that, that person is very determined, but, uh, you know, endearing. And so you cast them in that role or just the various types of every character was very, very different. So, um, you, you do sort of what's called typecasting where you cast based on the personality because you talk to the person because you also have to realize that you're going to spend a lot of time with them. So if you dislike them or they're a pain, you, you don't want any part of that. Um, so, you know, you'll get to a point where you'll cast someone and you, you go, was that a good idea? And um, it happens where, you know, someone kind of reveals themselves a little bit before <laughs> and, and you, and you replace them and you know, that happened. Um, and I don't regret doing it. Um, but um, it, uh, it was, um, it, you know, you could tell like talking, talking to them on the phone afterwards that they were, they were going to be a problem. And um, even though it was my, my first film, it was like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta be okay with firing people. It's just, it's just part of it. Did any of your cast have like any like outlandish requests? No, I mean the movie was so low budget that m- most of them I I couldn't acquiesce to anyway. So even if they said, you know, they understood the parameters and you know they'd been cast in September and you know it started in September. I think they were eventually cast in like November of 2014, and we didn't shoot for like seven or eight months. We did a rehearsal in there, so they you know knew me and they and and I knew them, and you know we would talk. And, and so there wasn't, you know, they understood the nature of the film. Um, they understood the nature that it was, you know, a mixture of like rambunctious horror and death and comedy and sometimes sweetness, but like that the characters had, were not given short shrift, which is normal in a horror film. You don't get to hear what the people are like. You don't, you know, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were actual characters written here with plenty of backstory that they could read into that they could create a life of their, of their own. And, and I, I found that it meant that I didn't have to do a ton of directing on set because I'd cast it properly and they were not necessarily playing themselves, but they were playing close enough where it wasn't a huge stretch. And um, it, it meant that we didn't, you know, we were rarely uh, hamstrung by having to do tons and tons of takes most of the time, unless there was a technical problem. We never did more than four. Um, and that's, I, you know, pretty unusual um, uh, considering some of the lengthy dialogue in the film that you, that, you know, because I, I believe that if somebody stumbles and it's natural, just leave it in mm-hmm. or cut around it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not, nobody has to get it perfect all the way through, especially now that they, you know, nonlinear editing is so much simpler than it used to be. Um, you can always like, if they stumble in one take, just use the audio from a different take and, cut to the other person and, and no one would ever notice. Yeah. Um, did you have any characters play more than one role? Um, no. Well, no, wait, not, I guess technically somebody, there were, there were people who were, who has one, you know, a producer has one is in the movie for 30 seconds. And then he's also an extra when we needed an extra last uh-huh. minute. But no, not 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 particularly. We did have um, 
doubles though when people weren't available um so there are certain scenes in which people are are you know a, an actor was not available so we would double them and it was fine because you know you shoot them from behind or it was a physical scene or it was um you know someone who was in heavy costume and you couldn't tell who they were anyway as long as you uh cast based on uh, height no one would ever notice mm-hmm. um so that yeah, there, there, no one playing dual roles in the same sense except by necessity. Yeah, I always wonder like why directors do that. Like um, Spielberg, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, had Richard Dreyfuss in like two different roles. And I'm like, I just never quite understood the purpose behind that. I mean, oh. sometimes it's to draw attention to yourself, to draw attention to the, the artifice of it. But mm-hmm. I was very conscious that I didn't want the film, even though it gets frequently absurd, to be self-aware. So I never wanted uh, the audience to, to yeah, I didn't want to break the fourth wall. I never wanted the audience to be thinking, oh, right, I'm watching a movie. Because I think that hurts any actual tension you might have. Because once you acknowledge that it's a, a movie, the, the you know the, the and the fourth wall is broken the facade is also broken and 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 the, the trust that they have with you that 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 uh you're trying to tell a story as opposed to kind of pat yourself on the back can is broken so even though the film frequently gets absurd i was very careful uh to tell the actors like we don't there's no winking here we're not going self-aware you're going to be in very strange silly scenes but don't you know don't sell yourself out by by you know telling the audience that you're in on the joke because it, it won't work anyway we're not in a, we're not in a parody yeah um with that many characters um in actors was it hard to kind of keep track of everybody no not really i mean it made it so that you know when we had we'd have shooting like the first part of the film was mostly all the same characters and so that was busting people in, back and forth, in and out, you know, back between Philadelphia and New York City. And, and then other people like had, okay, well, we're just shooting on these days. Um, it, it's not a matter of, you know, because, because I wrote the script and I was eminently, you know, I wrote all the different drafts of the script too. There wasn't anybody else in on any of that. I was eminently familiar with how everything worked and who everybody was. Um, and I didn't expect everybody else to keep track anyway. We, you know, we had... Uh, the, the first part of production, which was a little bit better financed, we had a much larger crew. And then by the, the stuff that was shot in 2017, I um, was doing most of the work myself or with the producer, uh, the planning and the, you know, script revision and the assistant director. I, that was basically just me. So I had to, you know, as long as you prepare enough, you can um, make changes on the fly. Uh, because it becomes basically like, okay, I know what's supposed to happen, but this is this element was unpredictable. But I can, I can make my adjustments, and it, it will it will work out. And it usually did. I mean, we had a shooting day, and I realized that you know you don't necessarily talk to a lot of film people, so this may not seem out of the ordinary. But this is trust me, very out of the ordinary. We had a shooting day where we had uh, eighteen sequences to shoot on ten locations, with about I think there were about fifteen or twenty actors that day. Um, and we would just, we, we just drive from location to location, to location now, and we're doing it in under 12 hours. So it meant that you could only spend, you know, 45 minutes to an hour in each place because you still got to include lunch in there. And then every time you have a move, you've got to move the cast and the crew as well. So 
you you may not and then and then you might have to light the the scene as well so that becomes an impossible thought because uh based on okay well we have to do this so now we have to go back to this piece and we have to go shoot this you're just completely packed in and so that day i was functioning as the writer producer director assistant director script supervisor i even did a little bit of makeup um I even was the proper prop master. I had props in my pocket and in between takes, I'd be ordering bus tickets to make sure everyone could get home. And I was also the assistant camera. So I'd be calling out the take and saying, you know, you know, scene 71, you know, C take four, whatever it was. And, and then as well as like keep track of where we are, you know, direct the actors, make sure everything, you know, make sure everyone's happy. And uh, all I had was a couple of people driving people back and forth to the bus station. And we had, you know, people coming in from New York and Delaware and, uh, New Jersey. And then I just had, you know, then I have to have everyone fill up the paperwork too. So I'm like, okay, I'm on top of this, I'm on top of this, but that would have never been possible had it not all been planned. How long so, did it take to, to plan just that one day? Um, that, that particular, we did, we did two different days like that. And that particular one um, came about very quickly. I think what happened is we needed to match some footage that had been shot about two weeks before and so my producer and I had to go out to New Jersey to get the footage from the director of photography who could not be there for that shooting day. So we got it from him like the week before. And I, the producer and I sat in a diner in New Jersey planning out parts of it. And then uh, we did most of it. And then I, and then I think I talked to talked through with him on the phone and we shot it four or five days later, uh, but I still had to go to work. Um, so um, yeah, it was, it took a couple of days, probably like probably a total of, you know, 12 hours to plan it. Um, and I had written up a very detailed um, call sheet, which laid out, you know, okay, at this t approximately this time, this will happen. These will happen. And we had to make an adjustment because the bus is coming in uh, with the actors uh, were an hour late. Um, even though I'd already worked that into the schedule, assuming it would take an hour to get from the bus station to the set, it was an additional hour late. So we just, we were, we had to squeeze it in even further, but it didn't, it didn't matter. We even squeezed in some um, what's called ADR where we were in a basement, which is where some of the film takes place. And I wrote some lines that I needed the actors to say. So while one of the sets was being lit by the, by the two camera operators, um, I went downstairs with a sound man and then recorded uh, uh, dialogue and audio with the, uh, some of the actors, you know, and I had written up all the dialogue that they needed them to say. So it, it was a, a basically theoretically impossible day. I mean, I, there was a, a we were on a, at one point on a, a, one of the last locations of the day and an actor who'd been, who's worked a lot and um, I apologize for us running a little bit behind. And he said, I saw the call sheet. I have no idea how you expected to accomplish all this. I'm not surprised that you're an hour or two behind. He's like, this would normally take, you know, a week to shoot this much. I'm like, oh, I don't have those kind of options, you know, financially or, or getting everybody in place at the same time. So you just kind of have to, you know, as long as you're prepared, you can, you can find your way around a problem usually. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, the work that you really, that you put into this film, I mean, six years of work, the effort, the money, it's incredible. I mean, that's dedication, you know. Well, at a certain point, you're, you're basically, you're, it's a sunk cost. You know, you're like, I'm in this, you know, initially when I, I didn't, I thought, you know, I remember having a conversation with someone who was a little critical of the fact that, you know, I was only intending to direct the dialogue sequences and have someone else deal with the horror and the action. And they said, why, why would you do that? And eventually I ended up just doing it on my own. But 
um, it's it's a it's a it's basically you you run through this problem where you're you're, you're having nightmares about not finishing the movie, and the nightmares that you have about not finishing the movie are worse than the sensible ones that you have about you know your financial viability, your your mental health, and uh, your emotional health. And it, you know, the, the nightmares are just worse. So you're like, I have to finish this no matter what happens um, just because I couldn't live with myself if it wasn't done. And then of course you go through the problem of, Oh, well I finished that. So that was, that was easy, which of course it wasn't. Uh, and then go, Oh, right, well, what's my next project? And people ask you that question and, and, and you, you, the, the buzz of making the movie, which was very limited, honestly, um, uh, you know, to early on, where people are saying the dialogue that you wrote and you're like, wow, that sounds better than what I had hoped it would sound like. You, 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 you want to, Oh, right. I could, I could go do that again. If I just write something sim- smaller where I'm not worrying about all the technical stuff, mm-hmm. you're always going to worry about the technical stuff. And there's always these side distractions, no matter how small the movie you make. Now, unfortunately I went about it the wrong way in which I made an enormous movie as my first film, which you should never do. And, and, you know, that's my mistake, but you know, I can't go back and fix it. Right. Um, so I'm gonna say, like, how did you? It's just amazing that you did that. How did you manage getting people to do the makeup, the special effects, uh, the filming equipment, the, the filming, and all that? Um, well, the makeup was one of the more expensive elements, but you know, you hire someone who does the makeup. That's basically, you know, you did they send you reels or they send you, oh, here's my website or here's what I've done or you get recommendations or, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, the, the the equipment, I mean, you know, I had a an idea that I just wanted to hire people who who would bring their own equipment because that way I didn't have to rent it, and I figured that they would be more uh, reliant on keeping their own equipment in good shape rather than when you rent things, you never know what kind of shape it's in and you never know when it might shut down. And then, you know, you might, you know, oh yeah, I get a refund for the day for this equipment that didn't work, but my shooting day is screwed. So it's much more likely that they'll take care of it if they own it. And so I would always think, all right, that's how I'm going to do this. So how I hired everybody and, you know, you, you make certain decisions quickly because you have to, and then you make other decisions over a long period of time because you have the luxury of doing it. So I did uh, hire the director of photography and he wasn't available when I wanted to shoot. And someone said to me, well, you know, you've seen what he can do. You've seen his reel, you know, make the adjustment to the schedule. So he's a bit when he's available. So I did that. And I made a deal with everybody that I could, which was look, read the script uh, I know I can't afford your normal rate. And um, and so read the script because I want you to work on this and actually like it. I don't want this to be just you came in and you worked on a reality show or you worked on a you know, cooking show or whatever it was that is just work you know, to pay the bills. I want you to be either proud of this or enjoy yourself doing it or th- think of it as a pleasant experience. And if you read the script, and I would give it to virtually anybody um, who wanted and, and if you like it, then you work with me on the price on what, on what I could afford. And if you don't like it, no hard feelings. It's not, you know, I don't mind if you don't like it, this isn't for mm-hmm. everybody. Um, then, then I know that you'll, you'll ask for your full price and I, I can't get there. And that's, and I did that with everybody. And, um, you know, some, some people would, would balk and, and go, um, 
well, this is my price. And they go, sorry, I can't meet that. And then anybody who would get, have that offer, they'd either read the script or they wouldn't. And I wouldn't know until much later that they never read it, but maybe they'd be intrigued by someone, you know, essentially saying, you know, here, this is, here, here are my options. <laughs> I, I, mm. I can't pay what you would normally ask for, but I hope this is something you, you want to do uh, because plenty of work in this industry is going to be uh, boring uh, it's going to be boilerplate. It's going to be not interesting. You're never going to think about it again. It's just essentially going to the office. Um, once you finished the film and edited it, how did you go through, how do you dist distri distribute the film? So that is very complex. Uh, it was finished in March of this year. And then what you have to do is figure out who might be interested, you send out screeners, we send out links really, um, and you just start sending out inquiry letters. And most distribution is, especially for independent film right now, is a, a scam. Um, they're not gonna pay you any upfront money for your film at all, unless you have big stars, in which case your movie would have cost a lot more. And, uh, and you maybe would have pre-sold it anyway, so you know, you're not having to worry about the distributor part of it. So most of them, um, in fact, I'd say it's at about 97, 98% do not offer any upfront money. And about 90% of them, you will not get any back-end money either. So you're essentially giving them a film. Um, so what the contract will look like, and you have to do a ton of research, and you have to figure out, because there's hundreds of options, uh, most of them very bad. So what you'll find is, um, you'll have a contract that you'll be offered and it'll be like, and the split is, you know, um, you know, uh, the filmmaker gets, you know, 70% and the distribution company, again, who hasn't paid you gets 30%, but they'll have something in there called what's, what's called a marketing minimum. And that's the amount of money that they say they're going to spend, not necessarily promoting your film, but selling it to like, you know, platforms or foreign countries or cable or whatever, all these sorts of things. And any money that, and then maybe that, that number is, it's going to be $10,000. And so anything uh, over, over and above that $10,000, so they have $10,000 they claim they're going to spend and they can justify it any way they want because you're going to have to pay to audit them if you question it. Any of that money of that $10,000, you're not getting a cent until that $10,000 is already justified by them. And at that point, that 70-30 kicks in. But before that, you have to deliver the film to them. And it isn't just, here's the movie. It's, and now you need this kind of license and you need this kind of insurance and you need um, this, you know, you need these legal, you know, assessments done and you need, you know, and it's a series of things and it could easily run you without question seven or $8,000. And that's just mm -hmm. to give them the movie. So in other words, seven or $8,000 after you're finished, after you've done everything, the movie is done. And you, you might have to create your own trailers, you know, create your own 30 second spots, create your own poster. Of course that, you know, that's part of the deal. You're also going to have to pay to market it because they're not going to do any marketing because there's no, there's no margins here. So what they tend to do, and it's going to get a lot worse now in uh, uh, post coronavirus, whenever that is uh, because the margins that they were making were so thin because basically these companies would, would buy up, not necessarily buy because they're obviously not giving you any money. They'd get 20 or 30 movies and they'd sell them sort of as a pack to a cable company or a streaming service or whatever. And um, they'd get, 
you know, pennies on the dollar, but it would build up because, you know, the filmmaker, you know, their one film might get, you know, four bucks, but mm-hmm. overall they sold 20 movies. And so, you know, in a month they might get, this company might get $80 from this one streaming platform. So it's your job as an independent filmmaker to learn about all the different streaming platforms. And it's very cheap to start your own streaming platform. So you got to do your research because you don't know if somebody inevitably is just going to start scamming because that's very common. You've got to learn about the different kinds. I can go into as much of this as you want or as little as you want because it's very complex. Wow. So how's the, where, where, where's your movie going to be released at? Like where are my, where would my listeners be able to find your movie? So, uh, it's, it's, I'm right now, I, I've had, I've had a ton of conversations and I've had offers and I have signed a deal, but it's a non-exclusive deal. Mm-hmm. And it means that I, they're, they're going to have it on their platform and then I'm still going to own the rights to do it through Amazon and other places and still sign other deals. And right now I'm negotiating with various, so it may be as early as next week or it may be in three weeks. Um, so I, I know, I don't know the length of these episodes. How long do you normally go? Like it an hour or so? Uh, yeah, I don't really have it. Anywhere between an hour and an hour and a half, really. Okay. So um, uh, it, it would be um, uh, available in, it, it may be available there's a negotiation going on right now that I can't get into details about, but basically virtual screenings through certain kinds of theaters, which is not playing in a theater. It means uh, virtual screenings are what they're doing now where basically the theater links to your uh, a Vimeo link uh, on either on their page or yours. And then you split the revenue with the theater. Um, so lots of theaters are doing this. Um, so basically you watch it at home, but the, you know, the theater gets, a larger piece in order to keep the, the, the smaller theaters in business. And then, you know, I get my piece on the other end and, you know, I come on shows or I do newspaper interviews to promote such a thing. So I don't know if you want to, uh, how long, how long do you plan on uh, keeping the interview before you air it? Um, actually, this was going to come out pretty soon, but what I can do is I have my Facebook page Mm-hmm. And I have notes under your episode. So when it, re- when it is released somewhere, I can post it for you. And well, do you, mind, do you mind holding it and I'll record a little thing for you and that you can edit it in? Just me saying, you can find it blank? Yeah, I can do that too. Okay. And I'm not saying hold it for a long time because mm-hmm. I did some interviews like in you know, June and July that are still being held. Because this is so, the, 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 it's a moving target with distribution because it just changes constantly and you're like, okay, who's either, you can't tell if somebody's ignoring you or they're not interested anymore. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's impossible. And then sometimes come, someone comes back to you like, hey, what happened? And you're like, I thought you were ignoring me. <laughs> so I, I moved on. I'm sorry, you haven't, you haven't gotten back to me in a month and I sent you three emails. I don't know I how to respond to that. I have to be with guests all the time. Um, so I can't, I can't quite answer the, where is it available now, but mm-hmm. wherever it is, it be on wait, wait, don't kill me.com. How, how did you, how would you feel about like, you know, since these distribution channels, a lot of them sound like they're a ripoff, but yet, you know, mainstream media companies too. I don't know. You know, they're just a monopoly. It, they're a monopoly basically. Like I think, for me, like when I watch movies now, the ones that are made, they're kind of just, I don't know. They just lack the artistic form. And 
with an independent, wouldn't it be cool to just create your own distribution? Um, well, there, there are always attempts at that, but usually what happens is they realize that you, they can't make any money and they have to start ripping people off. So, um, but, but what if it was just the idea was not to make money, like a nonprofit type of uh, well, then, distribution? Then channel. no one would ever finance a movie ever again. Because mm. if, if someone is giving you money, it's, it's, a, it's in order to make money, right? Right. So, so there are, you know, arts collectives and such, but they may not be uh, the same audience who might want to watch a, you know, a more mainstream style film. Like my film is not mainstream in the tone necessarily, but you know, it has elements that would be mainstream and that, you know, some of the horror pushes the envelope a little bit. Um, some of the things are silly. It, 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 it plays with mainstream ideas um, while being, you know, obviously a fairly ind independent film. I mean, the, the conglomerates I don't really get involved with, um, if I can avoid it, but, or, I mean, I, I'll get involved with them as long as I retain the rights, right. um, because it's very easy to sign away your life for 15 years. Um, I know plenty of people who did it with some of the companies that are known as like, you know, independent bastions of, you know, integrity and they'll sign a deal that's 15 years long and they'll never see a cent. And, uh, the deals are constructed that way. The deals are constructed. So, um, they intimidate the filmmaker and they make you not want to negotiate. And I, I don't, um, work in that way. I will negotiate everything, and um, you know, until it until it makes sense for me. Because why would I give up all the work just so you own the thing? I'm just handing it to you. Um, so it made some, made most sense to me to just to have lots and lots of non-exclusive deals, and that way, if something good comes along, I can change what I'm doing. I'm right. not locked in. I'm not told like there there is no hope for an independent film anymore. Uh, unless there's names in it to get on Netflix or Hulu um, because they, they produce their own material. And the only way to, you know, there's, there's things called um, aggregators in which you pay to get on platforms, which can be helpful for certain things and not helpful for others. Um, and it used to be, Oh, you could pay to get on Netflix. You'd pay to get on Hulu, but they're not really doing that anymore. And that's what a lot of the mainstream stuff it, where most people spend their time on Amazon or Hulu or yeah. Netflix. And Amazon has kind of uh, shut off the spigot in terms of letting people uh, uh, upload um, as much uh, qu as quickly as they used to. And their payouts are terrible. Um, a movie on Amazon prime, the payout is uh, one cent an hour. So if you watch my hour and 42 minute movie, I would make 1.67 cents, I think. Um, and if you do the math there, uh, it would be, uh, I think I figured it out once. If I just made something a, a $5 rental, it would call, it would be, and one person paid that $5 based on the split I would get with Amazon. It was something like, you know, 1500 people would have to watch it on Amazon prime versus just rent one person renting it for me to, to for me to earn the same, you know, $2 and 50 cents. Um, I don't know if that. But like, how long would it take for you to get the money back that you put into it? Oh, never. That kind of rate. Like, no, never. You would lose it, money, it, right? Of course, you lose money. No, it, that's a that's a no. See, the the thing is here, we're all going to lose money doing this. Um, there's almost no way to make money. I mean, I, the percentages are basically about 0.5 percent of independent films make their money back. I don't mean like are in profit. I mean just even reach their budget. Um, 
And most independent films probably only earn a couple thousand. Um, and, you know, obviously they cost a lot more than that. And, and you know, I, I didn't pay myself on this film. So if I got paid an hourly rate to do anything, I mean, I've spent thousands of hours working on it. You know, obviously the, you know, the, the actual budget would be much, much higher than it was. Um, so no, there's no real way to make your money back. Um, um, unless you completely luck out in some bizarre way. Um, if you've made it a truly independent film, because, uh, it's, everything is spread so thin that even if you own all the rights, all you can do is, all right, I'll put it on this platform and this platform and this platform. And then hopefully over a period of, you know, three years, I might get, you know, from each one, a couple hundred dollars a month and that'll add up. And then maybe I'll be close enough. Um, but anybody who spent more than, I don't know, 10 or $15,000 on a movie would have a very hard time even making that back. And of course they're not being paid for their time either. So. So it's a real, um, you do it because you want to do it, not so much because you want to make money off on it. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to, my goal originally was, Hey, this will be how I can get an agent because then I can get projects that I want. And then I learned that that's not even true. You know, you make a movie and um, they don't care. The problem is getting anybody's attention. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's any good. It just matters if you can get someone's attention and can you get it for more than five minutes? So my film is structured where you get attention right away. Like the first scene does disorient people, which is the whole point. I wanted, I wanted something Baroque and over the top. And so people spend the next 10 minutes kind of recovering from it, which is usually what happens. And then I can lay out the story points in ways that are a little less boring than normally would be necessary in a horror sci-fi comedy kind of thing. So then you get all the character background, but you're not buried in, you know, you're still sort of emotionally uh, rattled from the opening scene, but yeah, everything mm -hmm. is about getting people's attention and that's very difficult. Um, how, how, you know, everybody does things in shifts. I mean, you know, for instance, I'm, we're on a podcast right now and, you know, I listen to tons of podcasts, but I, I don't do it while I'm, I don't just sit down and listen to a podcast. I'm in a car, I'm doing the dishes, I'm doing the laundry, I'm doing all sorts of things, but I'm not giving it my full attention. I'm doing something else, even if yeah. I'm taking in what's being said. If, you've, if that's a form of entertainment, watching a movie is its own thing where you have to pay attention. And if you're spending hours and hours working on a movie, you know, thousands of hours, and then it turns out the person is kind of watching on their phone, but not really paying attention. Right. You don't really, you, you, nobody's going to go, oh, well, this is going to be the next blah, blah, blah. It really, now the, 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 what the pandemic is, has done is that it's eliminated a lot of things that were barely surviving. And, you know, film festivals were a way to reach certain people in certain ways, but it was very, it was very misleading because you would go to a festival and it wouldn't lead to anything, but that would be the highlight of your film's run. You'd, uh, you'd have the movie play there and everyone get excited. And then that would be the extent of it. And then maybe someone gave you a distribution deal, but it was the similar kind of thing where you end up with maybe a couple grand at the end of the day, but you, you spent three years and you, you, you grossed $2,000. That's, that's pretty normal for even things that are, that do well at festivals. There's plenty of, and, and you know, the big festivals like Sundance in Toronto right. 
anything that's that does well had some buzz beforehand for whatever reason it's very rare that you have something come out of the blue and make, make a huge impact financially uh anyway i mean and does it lead to something down the line i mean i think of um uh, if you know the filmmaker Jer jeremy saulnier he did some true detective episodes but he made green room and um he he made a superb movie called blue ruin uh, about seven or eight years ago and uh, it's an extraordinary thriller. And, and Green Room is terrific, too. He also made something for Netflix with Jeffrey Wright recently. Uh, I think it's called what, uh, Against the Dark or Hold the Dark. Um, and um, that was his second film. And it didn't, you know, the, he, they did it through crowdsourcing. And this is years and years ago, so it's a different uh, market completely. But I don't think they ever saw their money back, even though it was like a big hit at Cannes. And you have these things that make an impact in the small run, but but you know, they're big on, I guess what you would call film Twitter. Like everyone is a buzz, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't materialize. Nothing, no work comes out of that necessarily in which the, the money spent on the first, you know, project actually comes back to you. It's like, okay, hopefully this can lead to something else. Now it's being designed where the gatekeepers, uh, you, you don't even get close to them. And if we're getting rid of film festivals, you've gotten rid of it completely because all of this stuff is going to have to be done, not in person. Because nobody's, why would anybody sit in a theater with 500 people packed, packed in right now before we have any, anything re resembling a vaccine? If you were offered a chance to like work for one of these like big companies like Universal Studios or something like that, would you take it or would you choose to stay independent? I would depend on the project. I mean, if I'm going to be in a writer's room and I don't have to take credit and it's just to make some money and it's on some anonymous thing, that's not, that's fine. Um, you know, my next film, I, you know, I wrote and I can make, um, when, when it's possible to make a movie and I'll just go make it. I mean, that, that's, you know, if it's something where I write something and then everyone rewrites it and it doesn't matter to me, I'm, I'm, I, I care a lot less. It, it's fine. It, it, if it gets you out of having to, you know, work a nine to five job, you know, go, go through the routine of that, but, you know, working in a writer's room, Although I guess now we probably won't have that for a while either. But um, I mean, that doesn't, that, that's not the worst thing in the world. It's just, it's not very personal filmmaking. I don't know why you would get into this if it weren't some, some message you wanted to get across or something that you, that was, that, that you wanted to say. Um, just to do it just to, as, as work seems kind of empty and meaningless. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and filmmaking is so scattered where you, you know, you're with someone for a couple of weeks and then you might not see them ever again. Um, that it isn't necessarily like built on sustaining these sorts of relationships long-term. You might do it anyway, but um, I, I don't know if that answers your question. Would it, would I take, yeah, sure. But um, I don't think anybody's going to be paying attention to anything that I'm doing and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Um, I, I didn't do any of it for the uh, attention myself. You, you, you I did, I do things like, uh, you know, like, like make a movie, but for, for my own headspace, for my uh, own approval, that's what's, um, but it sounds strange, but that's what's important to me. What is, is that, you know, you say like, like, what is the message that you would want to convey through your films to the world at large? I don't know if there's a consistent theme. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a scene in, in uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me that is not my mantra, but it is it is an idea that I, I I play with a lot in everything that I write, 
So the villains of the film, and if you watch the trailer, you'll see the, the lead villain of the film. He's talking to his henchmen in the scene and they stops him and says, when you, when you get the, the, uh, the notification for jury duty, do you fill out the, the jury duty notice based on the lies you tell yourself every day so you can look at yourself in the mirror or do you fill it out honestly? And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a meta moment, but not quite. It almost tips over to that, but it doesn't really quite do that. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of self-awareness, but it's something that I think about. And it's, it happened when I was filling out the jury duty notice, which is you look at this piece of paper and it has these basic questions that it wants to, you want you to answer about crime and race and about police and lawyers and all sorts of things like that. And do you answer these questions based on whether or not you, you're going to be answering honestly or what you want the world to think about you? And, or do you answer them based on, hey, I want to get out of jury duty or I want to, I want to be in jury duty? It's, mm-hmm. you know, all these different options. And it's all about how the world uh, sees you. But the, the thing is, most people aren't paying any attention to anyone else anyway. And so all of this concern about how you look is, is wasted energy. So you should, in my mind, if there's an overall thought process I have, it's about why do people choose what version of the, do they put out in the world and why do they choose that? What's that based on? What are their fears about? So a lot of the scenes in in my film, in the first film, and then in other uh, stuff I've written are about what, what's the version of ourselves that we're presenting and why are we doing that? What's the, what's the incentive? What's, um, what's the fear that's making us a, making us adjust how we're presenting ourselves. What, why are you so scared? Do you not realize that most people don't think about you once you leave the room? Um, yeah, I, I, I play with that theme a lot. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, we're not as important as we think we are. Or like we blow up our own role or role uh, roles in our minds of, of, you know, how much we're going to affect the situation when in, in reality, there's so many outside things to a play. Maybe. That yeah, of course. And, and kind I kind of I've, insignificant. The best thing for us to do is to really be honest with ourselves. Or if it's important for you to deceive, why do you do that? I mean, lots of people. So, um, you know, the part of the question that, that the character asks is something I ask myself. Like, everybody tells themselves lies so they can look at themselves in the mirror. Because if you were too honest, you'd, you'd have a breakdown, right? You couldn't handle just 100% honesty. So every day, everybody says, all right, I'm going to tell myself this, or, or it's sub, more subconscious. Um, and I, that's how I'm going to manage to get through the day. And so how am I manipulating my behavior? And it's not just being polite. It's not just, you know, dressing properly in an office setting. It's, you know, or, or uh, it's, it's, you know, do I choose to be passive aggressive here? Do I choose to be nice here? How much of this is conscious? And, and it's, you know, I guess a sub theme is also because I am very self-aware uh, when I speak and what I'm thinking about. And so a lot of it is, is a bit pre-processed. Um, I've thought about a lot already so when I say things, it's like, it, it may seem like natural, but, but, and, it, and it's not rehearsed. It's, it's a thought that I've had that I'm, I'm working my way through, but it didn't just come up out of nowhere. Uh-huh. And so everybody is, I think, working with those, within those parameters. It just depends on how self-aware they are about it. Hmm. I must be unself-aware then. I just sort of, 
wing it most of the time. Well, do you find that that's helpful or do you wish you'd thought through things more? Um, actually, it's, when, when I think things through, I actually think I trip myself up a little bit. Where if I just kind of um, tune myself into what's going on or who I'm talking to or what I'm doing and just let it flow naturally, things go smoother and I get better results. If you don't think anything through? Yeah. But yeah. How, how do you, how do you, if you're just winging it though, like how do you plan something big? Um, I don't, you know, I just wait for ideas to come to me. Like this podcast. I never planned on doing a podcast. One day I was taking a shower. Right. You know. Well, but starting a, to, to be fair, starting a podcast is very low stakes. It, it is very low. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I, 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 I write, I've written a book. I, I play music. I do other things. But, but, you know, none of them are really giving you instant gratification. So in shower with this, I'm just going to start a podcast. But the funny thing about the podcast is, like, I didn't plan on doing it. I just started doing it. You know, I bought a mic and started it. And, I mean, now within a few months, you know, I've gotten it on the radio. And it's just, it's sort of blown up, mm -hmm. you know. And it was just. What? How, are, you, are, are you going to be able to sustain it through the end of the pandemic, though? Oh, yeah. Because a, a, lot, a lot of the shows that started up right around March and, uh, are probably not going to be around. Uh, in a couple of months. If not, I know that I did some shows that never even made it to my episode. <laughs> no, yeah, I definitely won't be able to manage it. Yeah. Because once, once everybody is able to function normally, I mean, I still have, I go to the office every day, um, yeah. but I work in an industry that's sort of a, uh, a necessity. So uh, the, the film stuff is a side, side job. Um, but once everything goes back to normal, no one's going to have the time. You're, it's going to be harder to get guests because not everyone's stuck at home. Now, what I don't know is if it's going to reveal uh, enough of just how many jobs are completely unnecessary or how many jobs could be just done without being in an office. I hope that mm -hmm. becomes the norm. But I know that I see it in people who have to spend all that day, all that time at home. It's not just, you know, the weight that they're putting on and the, and the atrophy that occurs. It's the emotional connection that they're missing. Yeah. See, I work full time the whole time. So I, my, my life hasn't changed. In fact, if anything, during the pandemic, I've gotten busier with work, mm -hmm. not slower. And right. I think with the guests, um, I mean, my, my main way of finding guests is I, I email publishers. And I ask publishers, I say, hey, do you have any authors that would be interested in doing my podcast? Mm -hmm. And, and they, uh, it just seems to work. You know, I'll get, you know, that's the easiest way. I was in the beginning. I was emailing individual authors. It was just sort of a waste of time. Uh, I found by you know emailing one publisher, I can get four or five guests. And, and most writers, especially, you know, they want to promote their stuff, and they're willing to take an hour to talk. Well, how do you break the hard part? I would think would be breaking through because I had a podcast in 2009 to 2012, but it was a ton of work. And if you, you could probably tell them, it's not that I'm a perfectionist. It's that I like things to be, to work as cleanly as possible within my limitations. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would spend time editing them and, you know, they'd be very comprehensive. I'd ask 
serious questions. I'd ask silly questions, but I'd want to, I'd do a lot of research when I, when I talk to people and it was so much work and there wasn't a lot of, there was no money in it. And there was no, there was no, it wasn't, there was no point. Cause I think some of those interviews do hold up. Uh, but it was, it was so much time. And there's even at the, even in 2009, 2012, there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of podcasts. Now it's so simple to record a podcast that how to break through, I don't have any idea. The market is so thinned out. You're going to have to, you're going to have to retain your motivation because everyone tells themselves, okay, you know, I'm going to keep going. And then eventually you just like, you know, start missing deadlines. I mean, you mentioned you had four of four podcasts that you were recording mm-hmm. today. Yeah. There's no way to keep up that pace, obviously, but. I think uh, I could keep it up. Because okay. like I plan on, actually I plan on keeping this podcast going. Mm-hmm. And I'm also planning on writing um, three books to kind of go with it. And, mm-hmm. and that will be like where the income will come from. Maybe it will probably be the books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know other people that have used similar models and it's worked. Um, and, and the reason, reason I found that out was just simply by um, interviewing other podcasters for my podcast. Like this whole process has just been learning. And, you know, like the hardest editing goes, I slap on an intro and an outro. That's it. Mm-hmm. I don't really do any, any type of editing. Because, like, say, for example, this was a live show. There would be no editing anyway. Right. You know, or me messing up your name at the beginning of the show. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not so uptight that, you know, it's going to embarrass me for getting a, a name wrong. You right. Know? I'm very careful with what I'm saying usually though. I mean, you may not be able to tell like I've not cursed or not even really gotten close. Um, It just comes from habit of like, okay, if I'm on a radio show or if I'm on a podcast, you don't know how it's going to uh, appear, you know, not offending people, but just, um, you know, limiting the audience more. Mm -hmm. And, and so you, you get, I don't, I've never been trained, but it becomes a, 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 a process by which you go, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to speak within these subjects and about this. So it, 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 it's, it's second nature. And, and I go about it in a way where I'm like, I don't want to bore myself, but at some point I'm probably going to get bored. (laughs) Um, um, so I, you know, it becomes its own perfectionism in a way. Like I I have no idea if it comes off as alienating or not. Uh, I think Um, perfectionism is a good thing to have in the field that you're in which is the filming because detail well, there's, there's no, so there's important. no, perf- there's no way to be perfect in a, in a subjective right. field though. So it's like, okay, which is the better choice here? And how do I fix them the, based on the mistake I made here? How do I fix that? Or how do mm-hmm. I adjust based on what, what I have, what I can fix with, you know, money, what I can't fix with money, I can fix with time or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I like my, my own thing is like, I'm just, I'm just sort of sloppy. I was even like that way as a musician. I would just get on stage and, you know, whatever happens, happens. And I think that's where that sort of comes from because there's a certain point where, you know, if you're especially in front of live people, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And sometimes the more I try to, you know, prevent myself from making a mistake, I just end up tripping myself off and making twice as many mistakes. So, so uh, I'm, I'm a, a, a pretty direct and abrasive person. So I'll just ask some questions if that's okay with you. Go ahead. So, 
uh, I went through my spiel, like, you know, whatever promoting the film. The only thing you didn't ask was about like, um, oh, how's it like making a viral pandemic movie about race and class in the middle of a viral thing? It's, you know, I, I could give you the boilerplate answer, but, uh, and, and it wouldn't be all that interesting or maybe it would be the audience. I don't really know. Um, uh, but what, what are some things that you really wanted to know apart from here are the traditional interview points and here's a thing that, you know, how that happens? Because, uh, like I've been on a show where, where the show, the entire thing was 15 minutes. So someone asked me one question, I talked for seven minutes and then they go, okay, thanks. Um, and, and you know, that stuff is just, okay. I'm, you know, giving shorter versions of the same thing. But then when I'm on a show where it goes on for several hours, one of them went on for four hours. Um, and, and it's just, you know, this guy kept, he, he, he didn't know a lot of, he knew about filmmaking, but he didn't know a ton. And, and so he would just, you know, ask me like philosophical questions and all sorts of things like that, which I found interesting because it was like, okay, well, I'm not on the beaten path here. I'm not answering questions in exactly the same way. I'm right now I'm doing the thing that a, that a PR person would tell me never to do, but I always annoyed PR people when I was a film critic and I would probably annoy them even more now. Um, So uh, uh, my point is I'm sure there's a thing that you want to ask and it doesn't have to be film related or something that, that, we could we could have like a back and forth in turn uh, 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 you know in comparison to the more straight laced you ask a question i answer for a couple minutes and i pause and wait for you to ask a, another question so there's got to be something where you where you got okay i always wanted to know this or what do you think of this that that that's what i'm you know that's what i i do this kind of thing for now because obviously you get bored of doing the well my movie's about this and it did this well, and you know what i would like you to do is send me a philly cheesesteak well i'm 35 miles outside of philadelphia and i think by the time it, i think by the time it got there if i mailed it as you, know, as, as you know the post office is being messed with right now when people are getting their medications yeah so uh i don't think a philly cheesesteak would be in any edible condition by the time it arrived where do you actually live uh I, as i said i live 35 I, i'm not gonna you know it, oh, okay uh, I'm from that. I, I live in Alabama now, but I'm originally uh-huh. from Princeton, New Jersey. So okay. I, I used to spend a lot of time sleeping in Philadelphia, actually, at a kind of street. Oh, okay. What so, was that like? It was fun. It was during the 80s and 90s. And this was before Lincoln Field was built. There was a place called the Spectrum. And you used to have a lot of okay. concerts there. So my thing was that I would drive up there and I would sleep out for a couple of days, get um, as many concert tickets as I could and don't sell them for you know, a day to concert, make money that way. Plus hit the concert. So, oh, okay. So you were, you were a scalper. Yeah, basically. I mean, nothing wrong with that. It's, or, it's a bit, or, or, it's, it's, or, or, or the good thing, I'll try to sell to other scalpers so I didn't have to walk around to do it. Right. Well, but you're still a scalper, which is, I don't, I don't have a problem with, with the, the notion of it. I get it. Um, it, it it's, it's what, it's what we might call now an entrepreneur, right? Well, when I was a kid, uh, <laughs> <laughs> plus it was a good way to hang out and drink yeah. beer and smoke weed. Because <laughs> one of the things I'm fascinated by, and maybe you don't run across it as much, but if you've got four podcasts, there's no way you haven't. Um, so uh, is the proliferation of podcasts and guests who are life coaches. Oh, I hate life coaches. I'll never interview another one. Well, I can imagine. I mean, it's a bore. And I interviewed one for myself. I talked to a guy. Uh, it was very nice. He didn't have to talk to me, but I interviewed him. And it was not for a show. It was like, I want to learn about this. 
Um, and he was a guy who said that he, he was a life coach who trained other life coaches. And then I, so I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm intrigued because I've written about this before. I'm fascinated by this Earl Burroughs, uh, which is a snake that eats his own tail um, mm-hmm. uh, of, of, a, of a thing. That's not really a job training you training another person to have something that's also not really a job. Um, <laughs> basically like, is this a pep talk? How come you just didn't did a you know a, a degree to become like a therapist uh, or, or whatever it is? Um, and there's so many of them. But here's what I've learned over time. Um, uh, for, first thing I learned when talking to the guy was that after three or four questions, especially the way that I ask questions, his whole narrative fell apart, and it turned out he didn't have any clients at all. Um, and he was just, he, he was trying to get on shows in the same way that I got on your show. I, I think I, you know, I po- posted, you know, you responding to you on, on Facebook and yeah. I found the guy in the same place. And I was like, he said he was this thing. And I'm like, yeah, I wrote about that, you know, 15 years ago because the notion of a, a life coach college was hilarious to me in which you have a, a thing where uh, a, a, someone trains other people how to start a college in which all the classes are about teaching people how to be a life coach. Um, and then, they, and then you have someone who teaches someone who teaches someone who teaches someone like it's an MC Escher painting. It just never ends. Um, and it was all bogus. Cause it was just like, okay, so what's the point of this? And so his narrative fell apart in about 15 minutes by about yeah. question three, basically. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And then I was talking to some a, a guy, a guy who was interviewing me. And before the show started, he explained to me something. I said, you must have interviewed life coaches, right? He's like, I have. He's like, I'm not doing that again. Similar response that you had. And he, <laughs> said, he said, he, he said, um, uh-oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, sorry, I forgot my phone was in my pocket. Um, uh, and he told me that um, basically uh, life coaches are trained to get on uh, podcast to start their own podcast and get on other podcasts. Like it's its own form of Scientology. Like, you know, just do as much press for yourself and you create your own narrative. You create your own background, you create your own press. And so, Terrible. well, of course it is. <laughs> it's just <laughs> bullshit. Of course it is. <laughs> but I find it fascinating. I'm like, how? So, so remember I said earlier, like, what's the theme? Like how much delusion, right? Right. How much delusion is required here? And you're telling a lie to someone else, but you believe it. And so remember I said, like, yeah, what, no, what are the I, lies I you it. tell yourself every day? Yes. And I'm always writing about that. And that's like, what a great central lie to your whole life um, in which you have, deci- you have devised this plan in which you're going to get on shows in which nobody but other life coaches listen to. <laughs> because it's boring because you're not talking you don't have any viewpoint your your job is you can't get a job basically so you're going to you're going to explain to someone else how to do that and you know you see these profiles on Facebook and you're like these these professionally put together or they talk a good game and i have a feeling 90% of them would fall apart under any scrutiny with any serious amount of follow up questions yeah the one the one that i interviewed i mean she was really into like this idea of power of positive thinking Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, how about if uh, your entire family dies in an accident? Okay. What are you going to do? Right. And, and, and like that was sort of like the end of that interview. <laughs> oh, okay. So she had nowhere to go. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't start out so stark, maybe. 
um, I would I would build into it. I mean, you know, you. Well, you I kind of did. You know, I mean, it was like you, an hour you, and a half. I, I eased my way into that. Okay, but, you wanted to be. But, but, but when I you wanted to be a sneak point, attack. You know? Yeah, you know, she she was just like, oh. <laughs> And, did she give you? Did she give you a satisfying answer, or did she just wriggle around? Oh, she didn't really have an answer. She's like, "Oh yeah, you know that's terrible," you know, <laughs> and you know she talked a little yeah, bit you, about she talked a little bit about the uh, was like the five stages of grief. Okay, you know, and, and, and I just wanted to say to her, you know, I, I know about the five stages. I mean, my 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 belief anyway on that is it's bullshit. When you, when, you, when you lose people to death or lose multiple people at the same time, it's, it's just pain that you have to live with because life is just, life is suffering, man, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and it's supposed to hurt, you know? It, you know, it, it just it was weird. And, uh, but, but she, she listened, she, she went back and looked at the episode and she's like, she really didn't even want me to post it. Why? Because she didn't like the way she sounded or something. I posted it anyway. Now that we're in this episode, why don't you tell us all which episode that is? Uh, I'm not going to give out her name. but it's... <laughs> <laughs> So I got I to gotta dig through your back catalog to figure out which one's the life coach? I'll, I'll tell you off the air. Oh, all right. That's fine. Yeah, definitely. I'll tell you who she um, was. But what's so, so as I was getting at, like, I'm, I'm much more playful and natural when I'm not just, you know, hawking my wares. Um, <laughs> so what's a question that you like, you know, I get to talk to a filmmaker and, you know, you, you got to go, you got to go through the basic questions. I totally get that. No objection to that. But there has to be like, okay, here's what I wanted to know. Or how does this thing work? Or, uh, or, you know, it doesn't even be about filmmaking. It could be about anything. You know, give, give give me a road to go uh, down. Like 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 with me, like well, we'll always I'm always get curious about is inspiration. You know, like okay. how like I told you how I got inspired to do this podcast. It was just something completely random. Mm -hmm. I know other people are inspired to do things. I mean, most people are inspired by money, yeah. or some people are inspired by faith. So or, so or fame. Thing, yeah. So so what what for me is always like what actually inspired you? Like what's in your heart that drove you to spend six years of your life and every dime that you had and every free moment you had to make a horror film about a virus, you know? I mean, here's the answer that I gave when I screened a rough cut um, of the movie. Um, and again, this is something a publicist would never, would tell me never to say, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so I was screening a rough cut for the movie from filmmakers and they said, why'd you make this movie? And I said, spite. Um, and they said, what? <laughs> and I proceeded to tell a story about someone that basically told me that I could not do it or that I was throwing things away or that they had, they had gotten in the way of making the movie at different stages and they had been kind of uh, mean and nasty. And this was my pushback was like, fine, I'm just going to make it and I'm going to make it the way that I want to do it. And, um, you know, I don't know how many future projects will be based on. I know my next film is based on spite as uh -huh. well. That's um, awesome. See, that's a great answer. It's honest. <laughs> that's right. perfect. It's but awesome. nobody wants to, nobody wants to hear, Oh, you did it out of bitterness and anger. I'm well, like, why not? Yeah, yeah, why yeah, not? So, you know, 
what what's a what's a driving motivation for some for 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 people when it's not um, money or fame or faith? I don't you know I, uh, I I I'm not interested in fame. I'm not interested in money, and I don't have any faith. So what's the fourth one? Revenge. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like a kung fu movie. Yes, but not dubbed. You know, everyone's speaking the right. same language. <laughs> So yeah, uh, uh, th- that's a that's a reason, but I'm sure there's other reasons, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, per- personal uh, accountability, uh, um, you know, just a drive to finish something, um, because yeah, there's all these things that get in the way that you're like that should absolutely shut everything down, and that will continue. Like I'll have nightmares about different things, like oh, I can't fix this, I can't do this. You know, tons of things you can never talk about publicly, like, like, oh, I can't mention this, I can't, blah, 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 I don't want this to happen, blah, you know, like, and and they're they're all never going to happen. Like all of your fears, almost none of them are going to happen. All the things right. that are bad that are going to happen are surprises. If you can't, like, I, I plan my life and and my entire attitude is worrying about the worst thing that's going to happen and how do I adjust to that. So that's one of those things that being really prepared is helpful. Because then when something not as bad happens, you are prepared for it because you've thought six or seven steps ahead. It's why when I was a school teacher, I was always encouraging the kids to play chess. I think it's really important to play chess. Um, Not that it matters if you get good at chess, but because it teaches you how to anticipate, how to see who your opponent is and what that person does. Uh And and when you're you're making a film, you've got, you know, uh, and they're not opponents necessarily, but, you know, uh, and, and, and human behavior is not entirely predictable. But if you're anticipating that something is going to go terribly wrong and you plan for it, you're probably better off because when it does go wrong in some other way, you're like, oh, that's not as bad. Here's, yeah. here, I, I assumed it would be way worse. So we just, we just, go, we just adjust our expectations about 50% instead of 400%. Right. So if I, I go to my wife and I say to her, you know, we should prepare for the worst. You know what she'll say to me? I'm being negative. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you don't have to position it that way. I know. But that's, what, that's what you would say. But, but I'm like that too. Like I'm, I, well, I'm partly like, well, we should be prepared for the worst. But I also know that the worst things you actually cannot be prepared for. You know, like the time of death. Like you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when you're going to get sick. You know, like, and, like you can have some money stashed away to take care of that financial part of it. You know, or, you know, place to live, somebody to take care of you. Um, but there's nothing that's ever going to take care of the, you know, the deeper level of it, I think, except experience, you know, and I think that's the one thing that I've gotten is I've gotten older since I've lived through probably every type of tragedy a person could live through. Now everything else just seems trivial. <laughs> I guess it depends. I mean, trivial but then it doesn't necessarily have meaning yeah but you know that's the thing like life has a little bit of meaning i think that the meaning of life is just to do the best that we can and learn whatever it is we're supposed to do and we're never going to know what that really is anyway you know but everything else um i'm not going to quote one of my other guests his name is uh dr richard allen miller Mm -hmm. and he said this whole thing is just a creepy dream Well, that seems unsatisfying. It seems realistic to me. Right, but why would, why would you then w- w- worry about navigating it if it's a dream? 
Because um, we don't have a choice. No, but you do. If, in a dream, you, you, you have outside factors control. But if, you, you know, it, it, if you're in real life, you have options. You can do nothing. I think in, no matter in, what a, we, in a dream, in a dream, you're brought along by your fears. Well, actually, I, I have a guy coming on next week. He's also been on here before, named Radow, and he's actually an expert on dreams. And, uh, and I'm also friends with this guy, um, Johnson Miller. He's a history professor over at Drexel, mm-hmm. and he, he's also written a book on dreams. And um, you know, some dreams are outside factors, and some are not. And but I think the reality that we kind of live in is, yes, we do have choices. And but the choices, no matter what choices we make, we're going to end up where we're supposed to end up. Uh, but it's either a choice of taking, you know, the long, painful road to that place or the shortcut. Okay. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. No, it does. But I mean, I'm not sure I'm, I'm with the premise, but, but, you know, it's your show. So <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's okay. If I have a fundamental disagreement with the premise. <laughs> that's fine, man. Dude, I, I, I'm a guy from New Jersey living in Alabama. Nobody agrees with me. <laughs> Well, but how did how did that happen? Is it an accident? I mean, I live where I live because I got a job out here, and I couldn't mm-hmm. um, I couldn't uh, make my dog have to put up with like missing me twelve hours a day and being alone that much. So uh, he was he was very unhappy with it. So I moved out to where I live now because I got a job out here. Mm-hmm. It's I'm just in suburban. You know, I'm thirty five miles outside of Philadelphia. I'm just I'm just in the suburbs, really. Um, it, you know, the only difference is that I had to learn how to drive eventually. Um, I, I, I went, you know, 40 years without a license. Wow. But because I lived in cities, you know, I grew up in New York and, and, and then lived in Columbus, Ohio. And oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So there was just no reason. And, and I've never liked Los Angeles, so I didn't really care about it. But now now I drive. And in fact, um, my girlfriend works out of the house because her job is, is, is now telecommuting. So I drive to work because the buses aren't safe because normally I would take the bus to work. So, but I only, I only, you know, work uh, about a mile from, from uh, home. So it's not a big deal. It's like a five minute drive every day. Um, but how do you end up in Alabama? Like, was there better, was there better ticket scalping in Alabama or something? <laughs> no, I'm not, I wasn't in this ticket scalping business. Anymore. What, what happened was um, I, I was working for Comcast for 12 years doing customer service. If you ever want a job that's going to suck your soul out of you, it's doing customer service for Comcast. Well, I worked at Circuit City for like seven months doing that kind of, (laughs) so I, 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 you know, I would sell the home theater stuff and then I, on the side, we would, um, we would make real money installing it for everybody. Uh Uh-huh. That was not part, you know, Circuit City had their own service that nobody used. And then we would just, you know, okay, well, you're my customer. How about you pay me to go do this for less money than Circuit City would do it? And then, you know, you pocket all that cash. But yeah, so I, I know that that feeling of of uh, of going into people's homes and doing that stuff and sales and stuff. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Sorry. So I was doing that and they they moved. Well, actually, at first I was doing that and then my 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 mom got sick with cancer. 
-hmm. So I was taking care of her while I was still working. And then she passed away. And my dad was by himself. And then he got sick. So I ended up having to leave the job and take care of my dad until he passed away. And we, I had moved in with him. Me and my wife both moved in to take care of him. And of course, when he passed, I had to sell the house because I have two older brothers. We had to split everything up. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had inherited some money and my wife's family lives down here. And it's a lot, the taxes down here are much less. It's much easier to live here. Mm -hmm. So we decided to give it a try and move down here. But from what you've described, it seems to be mostly downsides. Um, I'll say it's about 50-50. I mean, bars um, being able to live, not having to pay expensive taxes and stuff like that, it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, some of the people here, though, are definitely judgmental. Well, here's what I learned when I, I moved to Ohio <clears throat> about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, 13, I think. What I learned when I was there, I was living in Columbus, <clears throat> sorry, I have a little water here, is it wasn't just <clears throat> that people had a different viewpoint than me, it's that they had never considered there was another viewpoint than their own. That yeah. it, had never, it had never even occurred to them. And so the thought that I might believe something completely different and might have a different background, and I might be open to what their background is based on mm -hmm. the fact that I grew up in a place where everybody had different backgrounds. And so that stuff never bothered me. That it was not necessarily a, an offense that I thought differently. It was just curious, and I was easily just kind of uh, tossed off, but, but just like, oh, well, that's interesting, and then ignored a little bit. I'm assuming I have not spent any significant time in Alabama that your different viewpoint is actually hostile in a way. I don't consider it hostile. No, not from your side. But oh, towards me. Yes. That, that, that there is a, you know, burgeon, it, it, a burgeoning resentment to that. You have a different viewpoint that it, is not theirs. It, you know, I don't care what other people's viewpoints are. Like, I'm not going to argue with people. You know, I don't mm -hmm. care. I think like you, I approach it from, of you uh, from curiosity and understanding that not everybody's been exposed to everything that I've been exposed to. Um, but and it's also generational too. It's actually what, what really surprises me is um, the older people here are actually more open-minded and friendlier than some of the people that are like at my age, like in their forties and fifties. And how, how does that manifest itself? And, and the younger people are really different. Um, how, in, what, in what ways? Well, in closed-mindedness. It, it seems like the older people are a little bit more open-minded than the, the younger generations, which really kind of throws me off because like up north was sort of the opposite. Right. It's true because the, the, the people, as they age, become a little bit more defensive and they – they get stuck in their ways and then, you know, new, they don't want to adjust to anything new and they reject it. And that's true. That, I find that in the, in the uh, East coast as, and the North as well. But you're finding it's the opposite that people get more stuck in their ways when they're younger. Yeah. You think, you think, you think it's defensiveness. Do you think it's low self-esteem? No, I think it's, I think it's fear of change. The area that I live in Alabama is coastal mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people moving here. Um, it's growing really rapidly. And people fear change. 
Oh, okay. So you're so, you're, so, so sometimes they view people that are moving here as like an enemy. And, and if I'm catching your subtext, it's people that they don't want there for particular yeah. reasons. The Yankees. <laughs> well, that's not what I was thinking, but yes. That's what they, they say. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I, didn't mean, I, I didn't mean, oh, they're, they're, you know, well, they're still apparently fighting the Civil War if they're thinking of them as Yankees. But, um, but considering, um, I, I was implying what the Civil War might have been about. Mm-hmm. Um, the, sa- the same kind of person who might argue that the, the Civil War is about states' rights which is yeah. always the, the ultimate bad faith argument. Oh, the state's rights to do what then? Um, <laughs> um, anytime you, you have that, I, I wonder if you, have you had that discussion before? Um, a little bit, not, not a whole lot. You know, that, a lot of that stuff, the, I guess they keep it secretive. Um, I mean, there are some, there is a group here that's called the um, Sons of the Confederacy. Yep. But I don't know much about them or what they're about, you know. It's something that I don't, I don't even understand it, honestly. I don't get it. Well, what I find is the more questions you ask, the, the more, especially the more polite about it you are, you're going to get more information than you necessarily wanted. <laughs> um, but it's going to reveal who they are, and they have not thought about it deeply. Because otherwise... <laughs> You might, because you, you you don't want to get in trouble asking the wrong question with the wrong people. But it can be very easy to do because you because uh, I'm genuinely curious, and I I pro- you probably are too when you're in a situation. So like, oh, because I've talked with people who are uh, less than tolerant before, and I just let them talk, and then I ask lots and lots of follow-up questions until eventually you sort of trap them into. Well, where's this going exactly? It's either mm-hmm. well, I don't like blank because blank. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why do you think that? Well, this. Oh, okay. So is this based on some incident from your childhood where something bad happened to you that you were attributing to something other? No. Okay. Then why is all this fear coming out in your voice and why are you getting defensive when you hadn't been defensive before? Hmm. You know, just, you can, you can hammer people in different ways. I mean, it really is, depends. You you have a much more, you have a much more laid back way of talking than I I do. Yeah, I don't care too much. I don't even bother asking the questions, you know. Mm-hmm. I just kind of let it go, you know. I mean, somebody doesn't want to like me or whatever, I don't care. Like, but a lot of times, too, like, because the, 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 they're very political and they're very religious, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, they'll ask me about it. I was like, well, I don't vote. <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean you don't vote? And I'm like, I think it's all just bullshit, man, you know. Why am I gonna Why am I gonna vote for somebody who's just gonna tell me what to do and take my money? I'm, I'm just an anarchist. I'm like an old school punk rocker, you know. Well, I, that that brings me to a different question. So, so um, uh, I I discuss you know things like the military industrial complex and you know the uh, prison industrial complex quite frequently in my private life. If you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually was one of uh, Kurt Vonnegut's themes. And, and you know, w- w- one of the things I was explaining this to somebody, and I work in an industry filled with very, very uh, conservative people, naturally. Um, so the fact that I'm not of that ilk um, is uh, an anathema to them, um, especially in, the, in the, the way that I speak. I don't, I don't get excited or upset, um, but I speak, you know, tend to be very – I slow down when I'm on a show – um, cause I'm aware that people have to listen. So, um, 
one of the things I'm curious about is whether you've ever had that conversation or whether the people there are aware of stuff like, you know, the, the military industrial complex in which, you know, munitions and weapons and, and, and vehicles and all these things are built for military that doesn't necessarily want them. And they're, they're propped up by, by, you know, uh, a Senator at, uh, uh, trying to bring jobs to a, a state that's not, does not have any other, kinds of jobs. So it's all like all military bases and all like, you know, Boeing and all that sort of thing, and which is completely financed by the taxpayers, completely subsidized. Mm-hmm. And then all those weapons are never used in war. And if they are, they're used to kill poor people who didn't do anything. And uh, usually poor brown people uh, fighting wars that are for the benefit of corporations. So what you find is, so then the weapons, if they're not used, they're then sent off to, um, uh, police forces who don't need them. Um, and then those, those police forces suddenly think of themselves as their own military unit. And then uh-huh. they get a little overzealous with the locals. So I was reading a story yesterday about a Florida sheriff who's gotten in trouble for trying to set up his mistress is like claiming that he was being stalked by her, but basically he'd been caught by his wife and he was trying to excuse it. Um, and there was a part of the story where it talked about how he was very proud of the fact that he'd used tanks to go after people who smoke weed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was talking to my coworker about this and, and I said, yeah, you know, this is the military industrial complex at work, you know, a little overzealous. You, you think you're in some sort of war when you're going after someone for smoking a plant. I mean, a little over yeah. the top, uh, considering you're, 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 you don't have any moral qualms about ruining your life, your wife's life, your, your mistress's mm-hmm. life or anybody else involved. <laughs> um, uh, it seems, you know, counter say counterproductive. Right. Um, and do you know how, like I mentioned, like that with that weird generational thing, how it's the kind of reversed here? Mm-hmm. And, and to answer that question, um, a lot of the older guys who've served in places like Nam and Korea and right. stuff like that, they understand, you know, that military complex, industrial complex. Eisenhower mentioned it specifically in his but the younger, address, But yeah. the younger ones don't. Because they haven't partaked in it. But you don't even have to be part of the military. I've never been in the military. I know. But, but, I, <laughs> but, but, I, understand, but I understand, like, okay, you're, you're, you're propping up a state that's not working. And there's no real jobs there. So all that money to build these weapons comes from taxes or subsidizing Boeing mm-hmm. or whatever. And then, and then, and then the weapons aren't, don't have any use. <clears throat> And, and the, those, those, you're basically saying there's no industry in this entire state. How many states have that? Yeah. Where there's like the main industry is building weapons. To do what? Yeah. Like, I, too, I live in like a, a coastal area, too. So here, like, the fishing, shrimping industry is really big. Um, also, tourism is really big here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, and um, what else? So anyway, what I'm kind of say, trying to get around saying the area that I live in of Alabama doesn't experience a lot of the stuff that the other areas do. Okay. Because they do have industry. And agriculturally, too, in my area, they do grow a lot of cotton, peanuts, stuff like that. Yeah, but almost, and, all, and, and, almost, and also, all, farming, almost all farming is subsidized, too. Like yeah. Those are, it's all, I mean, I don't know if you ever have to get in that conversation like, hey, you, you guys know you're socialists, right? <laughs> yeah see i don't even go there i don't even care like and i know like they're also trying to get hemp down here to grow mm. 
like they're trying to get the, that um, unregulated so they can grow a lot of hemp. Mm-hmm. So the, the, you know they do have industry, but I think like in the rural areas, it's completely different. And since mm-hmm. I don't live in those areas, I don't really know. I'm going to kind of drive through them, and they're kind of scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I've uh, even on the East Coast, there there are places like that that exist. Even yeah, I know. In, uh, in New Jersey, I've been in I've been in certain areas where mm-hmm. uh, where yeah, there was a in the pines. <sighs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking of other places that I won't name, but but doing a location scout and uh, in a place where they literally have the black part of town, the Hispanic part of town, and the white part of town. Can do. Uh, no, um, I'm not going to say where it is. We, <laughs> <laughs> they were otherwise very nice to us, um, but uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was very stark, and then you would pass some place that was. Um, you know, literally owned by the KKK and you're like, okay. Uh, I didn't know this existed here. And, you know, people um, uh, using words that might've been okay in South Carolina in 1850, but we're not really okay here, but you just kind of ignore it. Yeah. Um, you, you, you um, yeah, you're in situations that you wish you weren't and you just, you know, I, I uh, go along with my white privilege and get away with it. I just hope, hope they don't notice my big Jew nose. <laughs> well, I know it was like that. Like right, during the nineties, I lived in Trenton, and actually, I lived like I was the only white guy in my block. Mm-hmm. But but there's a part. There's like a, um, an invisible line back then. Anyway, not anymore. That kind of went through Trenton that separated like the black and Hispanic neighborhood with the Italian and Polish neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And you know, if they crossed that line, it meant you were in trouble. Which is weird. I mean, you know, well, I guess it's not all that strange because everybody makes their own odd dividing lines. But I mean, if, if everybody is that close where they're, where you're like, I got that. Cause, cause I, you know, cause I grew up in New York and then I lived in different boroughs. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I lived in Ridgewood and you'd be, you know, the block would be like half Italian, half Eastern European and, and well, no, 40% Italian, 40% Eastern European and 20% Hispanic. And that'd be one block. And then you go a block over and it'd be like, okay, like it's a complete melting pot in every way. And people still had their prejudice and stuff and people would have their stereotypes and, you know, kids would say, Hey, so you're Jewish. Does that mean this? You know, that kind of, <laughs> you get these questions and you have to go, well, no, it means it doesn't mean any of that, but I'm glad you, I'm glad you're approaching this with someone instead of hurling insults. That's, that's probably more healthy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm, I'm always curious because I've never, I've been to the South, but I've never lived there. And, it, you know, there, there are certain places that, that I've been in and thought, this, this was not a great idea. I mean, I have a, um, I, I went to Hampshire College um, for a year, um, which I guess I'm not sure is going to reopen. I mean, they were about to close anyway before the pandemic, and I can't imagine it's going to sustain. Um, but it's a, it's a college, no grades or tests. And when you went there, it was... Um, uh, part of a consortium with UMass, Amherst, Mount Holyoke, and Smith. So you could take a class at any of those. Uh-huh. And I was on the ultimate Frisbee team in Hampshire. And we were, um, uh, we didn't have a team name before I started there, but, but the, the, the guy who ran the team eventually came up with the team name because there was a joke in the UMass newspaper uh, because Hampshire was known as a school for like hippies to do drugs and 
you know, artist and there were no grades or tests. So you just made up your own ma- and you made up your own major. So, um, basically, uh, one, one, the, the, the UMass basketball team wasn't doing well. And so the, the UMass paper said that they should all just drop out and join the Hampshire red scare. Um, you know, you know, the red scare, like communism and stuff. Uh, yeah. So, so, so my coach decided, uh, to, that they, that the actual ultimate Frisbee team would be known as the Hampshire red scare. So our t-shirts were hammer and sickle on the front uh-huh. and we'd play that way. You know, we played, you know, mostly playing locally, but then we went to a tournament in South Carolina in North Carolina. So we played on like the UNC campus and we had to, we had to drive from Massachusetts to, to North Carolina and we were staying in South Carolina at someone's uh, beach house or something like that. It was like 17 of us. Um, and we had people from UMass and we had people from Smith on the team and all that stuff. And we're driving out there and we're all wearing our shirts. And on the back of the t-shirt, it said, have you, or have you ever been a member of the Hampshire Red Scare Ultimate Frisbee team? Which was the question that, that, uh, um, you know, w- was asked of, of many communists when they were trying to root them out of the government in the fifties. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we're wearing these shirts and uh, we're driving through. And then at a certain point, uh, our coach tells us, hey, we shouldn't wear these shirts in certain places. You can wear it on campus. You can wear it when we're on a a other college campus, but maybe not when we're driving through states that this might not be acceptable. People see the hammer and sickle and go nuts and they don't have a sense of humor about it. (laughs) And and not everyone, you know, some of us took it seriously, but then I was there when when a guy, uh, we were at a gas station getting food and people going to the bathroom and this guy approached one of our teammates and he said, uh, I think we were, I don't remember what state we were in, but we were in a Southern state at that point. Uh, we were, we were not in a, a an, uh, an open-minded area, I'll say, and walked up to him and said, I see that shirt there. You know, my daddy died fighting you guys in WW2 and I don't appreciate what you're doing there. Um, and nobody was going to explain to them that actually the Russians were responsible for us winning World War II. But, um, that's that's one of those situations where you get in, in like okay well let's just all not let's make sure we just don't get killed. Mm-hmm. Um, this is about avoiding violence, not debating the point of hey you're actually <laughs> wrong. The red scare is later. Uh, the, the communists, you know, getting into all of that stuff. You know, the the, the nuances are going to be lost a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I I that's sort of my experience. You know in certain states and so you have that like is it all deliverance probably not you probably don't go through that being on the coast i guess yeah not on the uh, coast but if i go when you go like further in it gets strange but actually like, it's kind of funny too like the area i live in is also they make a lot of movies here oddly enough um i live like about i live like a mile away from the close encounters house you know the house where the kid opens up the back door and the light shines in? Right. But what have they like, made recently? Because that's like 77. Um, yeah, that was 77. The most recent one um, was a movie with um, Dakota Johnson called The Friend. Okay. okay. That was made here. Um, the horror movie Get Out was made here. Okay. So, yeah. It's kind of – I think there's one other movie too. There's a movie called The Coffee Shop that was made here. That's a that's a that's a title that won't grab you. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a silly, um, like lifetime type of movie. 
Oh, I'm sure. Uh, I, I mean, for instance, I was writing a piece the other day, and in in the script is is the scene where this person claims to be an actress, and the the the, the subtext of the joke that's that, that the, the the main character later figures out is that she's not. She just says she's an actress, but she's not really, and. Um, so he looks her up on IMDb to figure out like what she's been in. And it just says extra short, you know, she was an extra in, in a short film. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the original title I wrote in was the park bench. Cause I'm like, this sounds like the most boring thing in the world. <laughs> if you call your movie, the park bench. And then I look it up and it turns out there's a movie called the park bench. Um, and so I'm like, well, I guess I can't call it the park bench then. So I come up with like the park bench of blah, blah, like the, just, the thing that sounds most boring. And then, you know, she's extra in the background of this short film. Um, so I, when you say the coffee shop, I immediately think of the park bench. Oh, well, that's not enticing. Why would I, right. why would I ever want to see something? Uh, are they going dis- to discuss park rules? Are they going to discuss, like, you know, how much to tip people in the coffee shop? I mean, in, in the coffee shop movie? I don't know. I once saw a, uh, a movie in Philadelphia. So this is a... Uh, a long extended pointless joke, which you're, you you should be happy to in- interrupt at any time. But this this really happened. So uh, I, when I was a film critic, I used to go to uh, film festivals that were local, which is why I don't have a lot of faith in film festivals, actually, because um, I've experienced them from the other side of it, and I see that it doesn't go anywhere. And there was a movie that was um, being uh, shown at this large theater in Philadelphia as part of the festival. And I kind of had an objection to being shown at all because the slots were being taken by films that were either produced by the guy who ran the festival or friends of his that um, he knew uh, that, that had films there. And they were that year, there were three of this guy's films, um, you know, taking up slots of more deserving films. And there was a movie being shown called cafe with Jamie Kennedy and Jennifer Love Hewitt. And it's very boring. And I knew it would be boring. It would be bad. It would be about, you know, like what goes on at this cafe and is it, are they really in heaven and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you know, in five years, this will be on lifetime network basically. And that's pretty much what happened. But because of the nature of the way that I was a film critic and that I was like more, uh, uh, not necessarily abrasive, but I like, I, I like to stir shit up, excuse me, stir stuff up. Um, and, and like at least keep the, the other person entertained, if not myself, um, they're, I knew Jamie, they said that Jamie Kennedy was going to do a Q and a, and I was like, great. So then I get to, I get to, you know, ask the question that I want to ask. And I'm someone like, who's not afraid of like being in crowds. Cause there was going to be 500 people there. And they were, and because it was me, it was made locally. Everybody uh, was going to cheer the movie, no matter how bad it was. And it was bad. Um, and Jamie Kennedy years before had made a movie called heckler. And um, in the movie Heckler, it's a documentary where at first it starts out about um, people who heckle stand-up comedians and what's the mindset behind that and why would do that and interrupt the performance. And then Jamie Kennedy decides that somehow film critics are also like hecklers, which they are clearly not because a heckler interrupts a live performance and disrupts it, and a film critic does none of that. Um, and a film critic, you know, has an audience and they're, they're writing and like there's thought process that goes into it. So it was, it was basically Jamie Kennedy was upset because his son, his movie son of the mask got poor reviews and he decided that that must be the same thing as being hecklers. So obviously he had an ax to grind. And so the movie is like half and half where it's interesting. And then the second half, I didn't mind that it was like 
he's attacking film critics. Go ahead. That, that's what you need to do. But it was, it was like specious logic. <laughs> but he was so upset that, like, that he made a whole documentary about it. So I go to see Cafe, and I'm like, I know exactly what I'm going to ask if they do a Q&A. So on my website at the time, you can still find it there. Because of the movie Heckler, there was a category that said, Jamie Kennedy ate my puppy. Because it was just like based on, if he's so upset by critics saying things that are negative about his movies, I'm just going to say that he ate my puppy, even though that's ridiculous. <coughs> Excuse me. So I go to the screening of Cafe, which again, the boring title is, is, is fitting. Um, and I sit through it, suffer through it. And at the end, there's a Q&A. And I raise my hand and there's probably 500 people there, maybe 550. It's in a huge theater. And they, the, the director calls on me and I say that, you know, hi, the question for Jamie. And, and, I, and I said, um, uh, so if, uh, if Cafe doesn't do well, are you going to make a documentary about that too? Um, and he went, oh, you know, and he's like, did, did, sir, did you see that movie? He's like, he's, he's like, yeah, yeah. I, I said, I, and I explained about the Jamie Kennedy at my puppy. And he's like, he's like, oh man, Debbie Downer. And then the, the director snaps to attention. He goes, uh, next question. Um, <laughs> but I realize a very long story for a joke, basically at the expense of Jamie Kennedy and also me being a, 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 an unpleasant person. Um, but um, yeah, when you, sometimes you get those, those titles that I, I you know, do you, do you work with that title and you go, yeah, I want to name it that I'm going to, I'm going to have people see that the park bench or the coffee shop or cafe in that case. <laughs> yeah. Terrible title. Speaking of titles, I got to get going because I have another interview. Okay. And the title of this guy's movie mm-hmm. is toxic alien babies from outer space. Okay. <laughs> So, I mean, is he, is he, next. is, uh, is he going to stand behind that title? Is it, are there actually toxic alien babies from outer space or is that just someone came up with that and went, yeah, go with that. I have no idea. Like I, said, I hope, I hope, <laughs> I hope toxic <laughs> alien babies from space has nothing to do with it. It's like about, it's like, like raising chickens or something. <laughs> uh, I'm going to find out soon enough and then give you a list of my podcast and find out the answer to that question. Okay, and then if you want to tell me the name of the, the, the life coach thing off the air, please do tell me that. Oh, yeah. Let me, let's wrap this up. First, what's your website so my listeners know? Yeah, just go to waitwaitdon'tkillme.com, and um, I'm going to have an update fairly soon. It's gonna, the movie's going to come out really, really soon. Hopefully, you can hold this maybe a week or two, and I can say, okay, now it's out, if that's okay with you. Awesome. And so the movie's Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, and uh-huh. you are Adam... Lippy, 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 suck at pronunciation. And um, thank you for being on the show. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. And tell it be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. 
On Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash everything imaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening, and see you next week. You know, yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.